Hello and welcome to Your Mindful Hour. I'm your host, Melissa Marks. Each episode, we highlight a person outside of the traditional health and wellness space who is bringing some element of meditation or mindfulness into his or her life. Today, I have the honor of chatting with Professor and Dean of the School of Education at University of North Texas, Dallas, John Gasco. He is also the visionary behind a new revolutionary approach to how we prepare teachers to live and work, as John says, in a world that is increasingly volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous. This project is called Third Space. I can't wait for you to hear about it. It truly is the first of its kind and it's happening all right here in Dallas. John also shares his own personal journey with meditation and some of the early challenges he overcame in order to be able to carry out this extraordinary mission and vision. I was inspired. I hope you are too. Welcome, John. How's it going? Uh, Doing well, thank you. Great to be in your company. Oh, thank you, John. I'm really, really happy you're here. And thank you for making the time this morning to to chat. I'm really, really excited to talk with you. And I always like to start the show by giving a little bit of a context for how guests come on the show. And for you, it's really kind of interesting. I, I met you formally only once, I would say about two years ago. And what's funny for me is that when I reached out to you recently to to do this podcast and ask if, if you were interested, I fully expected to have to you know, remind you how we met and it was brief and there were a lot of people and, and I really did not expect you to remember remember me and and not to elevate you and put myself down in any way but just because of the dynamics of that and um you know i knew you well before i met you because of the relationship with unt and uh mastermind the mindfulness studio here in dallas and i being a teacher there heard your name many many times mentioned and so you know, fast forward to me reaching back out to you. I, again, fully expected to have to remind you of our brief meeting. But what was really interesting for me is that you did remember. And I, I, I say that not because it has anything to do with me, but because that says everything to, to do with you. And it, and it shows the kind of person you are, the fact that you remember details like that, and it's it's just really impressive. And I know that mindfulness and meditation helps with our memory. And so I thought, wow, he's he's a really thoughtful person and a and a really special person. And it immediately made me know something about you, like a, a little bit of a dare I say, like a, a little intimate detail about you that your your memory is is that way and that you did remember. So I thought I would share that and tell you that that meant a lot to me. Thanks for uh, telling me that. I appreciate it. And, you know, I always value sort of how important relationships are Mm -hmm. and in our society, especially with the acceleration of what I call the fourth dimension, AKA the digital sphere, Mm -hmm. our our ability to remember is becoming increasingly colonized. So I I try to be really intentional about um, remembering because it helps people to continue to make connections and feel valued. Absolutely. And I think that that has so much to do about being present like when when the information is coming into us if we're receiving it not from a place of fight or flight or stress 
you know, if we're, if we're receiving information in a, an open, expansive place, we're that much more likely to be able to retrieve it because it, it was, it, it came in, in a, in a healthy, open context. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> well, cool. So John, let's, let's start off by having you tell us about you. Who is John? <clears throat> well, um, you know, uh, let's see, professionally, I have the privilege of serving as uh, first and foremost a professor, which means I, I'm a teacher. Uh, I also serve my colleagues, uh, a rising, amazing group of people um, in the School of Education at the University of North Texas at Dallas uh, as dean, which means uh, I have to really be on the front lines of trying to create uh awareness around the great work that we do and, and help the field collectively um, reimagine what education means. Mm. I want to know how you're helping to reimagine that field. That sounds it's very, very juicy, but um, how long have you been in that role? Uh, I became uh, dean and professor three years ago. Mm-hmm. And before that, you were an educator? Uh, before that, immediately before that, I was a chief executive officer of a startup educational technology company in Chicago, affiliated with the University of Chicago. And then oh. prior to that, had other academic appointments. And my sort of root entry into the field of education was um, my grandparents, who were both lifelong educators and mavericks. Mm. in their field. So they inspired me that, you know, to constantly try to be on the edge of innovation and not be afraid to speak the truth uh, in the midst of the journey. And so I ultimately switched careers based on their example and my own discernment from engineering uh, to uh, becoming a teacher starting from scratch. Oh, that's really interesting. So what were some early memories with your grandparents that, that inspired you? Well, I grew up in a very uh, traumatic situation um, in terms of my personal upbringing in New York. <clears throat> my grandparents were gracious enough to invite me into their own home and family uh, in high school. Uh, so I made a, a very turbulent transition um, from, you know, sort of a cauldron of adversity. Uh, I like to tell people my steady diet for the first, you know, 13 years of my life was cortisol. Oh boy! Um, and so they sort of opened their home and provided me with sort of the kinds of supports uh, that I needed to, to sort of stabilize on my journey. And, you know, growing up as a high school student, trying to heal from some deep wounds in my past, I uh, got to see their example, not only as family members who love me and care for me, but as like extremely devoted educators. And so my grandmother was the first health educator in the state of New York to have the courage to, to say that students and schools need to talk about HIV and AIDS. Mm. Uh, so she created uh, the first public school curriculum in, in the health field. Uh, so for students taking health, where it became okay to talk about um, HIV and AIDS. And so that like deep, her courage deeply impacted me. She took a lot of heat for that, as you can imagine. Mm -hmm. My my uh, grandfather spent 30 years in the same school in the same classroom. Talk about commitment oh, wow. and loyalty and dedication. Wow. Uh, so I, I remember him coming home and having this briefcase that was seemingly endless. Uh, and he would just be pulling like what seemed to be like reams of paper to grade and, um, you know, and he also was um, a leader in the public school union for the state of New York and was the, the union um, sort of lead uh, negotiator to help teachers uh, improve their livelihoods by significantly increasing the ceiling for them so that they could retire with a just wage. So, oh my goodness. Yeah. So Great I kind of grew up in that, I grew up in that lineage, which is a lineage of love, caring, and a really strong focus on service and justice. Oh my gosh, that's so incredible. And really this, i um, about to ask a question, but I'll preface it by saying that if I have 
ever ask a question that you don't want to answer, just please, um, please let me know. I never want to um, push too much, but the curious part of me is wondering about if you're comfortable at all sharing what happened before you were with your grandparents. Yeah, I'm happy to share that. I've sort of learned on my own journey that vulnerability is uh, courage and bravery. So yes, amen to that. Mm-hmm. I try to I try to lead as best as I can from that edge. Um, but essentially, I uh, uh, was raised largely in a single parent home. Um, my father was diagnosed with schizophrenia at a young age, and at that time in the 70s, uh, I was born in 1973. Uh, Oh my gosh, we're the same age. Oh, cool. Good coincidence. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, you know, (laughs) now the sort of the the sort of psychiatric psychotherapeutic community really didn't know what to do with uh, people suffering some schizophrenia, so they just sort of flooded them with a lot of medication like Thorazine, uh, which is really toxic, and and sort of imprisoned them in uh, psychiatric hospitals, which were not the best places. So. Uh, that sort of separation of my mother and father was traumatic for me. I, I remember traveling around New York, visiting my dad in these different hospitals. Uh, and that sort of, you know, it's not the ideal way to think about secure positive attachments with your father, but nevertheless, that's what I dealt with. And my mom, you know, suffered from addiction. Mm. Uh, so she, uh, was addicted to a variety of things. And so that had, uh, adverse consequences for my relationship with her and the sorts of developmental issues, uh, I dealt with as a kid. If you're familiar with a growing body of work called, uh, the, the ACEs work or adverse childhood experiences, Mm -hmm. it's a, it's a scale of 10, that pediatricians are really starting to pay attention to now um, that, you know, sort of show, you know, the kinds of, um, you know, factors in one's life uh, that, you know, predict potentially like uh, a lot of potential disease and chronic health conditions you can face as a result. And so out of a sort of Um, scale of 10, I I had nine of those 10 adversity factors. And so Mm -hmm. I've, as a result of that, sort of been grappling with the ramifications of that in my own life. And that's why, you know, sort of the subject we're talking about today became such a lifesaver for me. Oh my gosh, absolutely. So, so many things here, you know, the, that early, early childhood uh, as you said earlier, just living from cortisol, I mean, very traumatic, difficult upbringing. And like you said, with uh, impacting the way to have a, sh- a strong attachment with um, both of your primary caregivers and, and just that early, early start. And then, as you said, being able to talk about that now as an adult and to lead to be a leader that can share and be open and vulnerable is is another testament to the journey you've taken. And so I'm curious about where meditation came into your life, where mindfulness came in, and then you know I'd like love to then dovetail into your your current work at UNT and the and the projects that you're you're invested in because I think it's all very interconnected. So. When when did the meditation piece come into your life personally? Uh, you know, the, all the research about um, the ramifications of being exposed to chronic trauma, you know, indicate that, you know, the, <clears throat> to quote a famous sort of trauma physician, the body keeps the score mm-hmm. or AKA there are issues in our tissues. Um, so, you know, over time as a young person who grappled with this adversity, uh, I found a language that allowed me to sort of bring my body, um, become more embodied, uh, in mm-hmm. my life. And that was the martial arts. Uh, so I, I started doing martial arts for all the wrong reasons initially, which was around fighting and trying to deal with, uh, the issues beneath the surface, um, 
But over time, I started getting access to teachers and philosophies that suggested there was another side of the martial arts and another goal. Um, so, and that was around like this sort of cultivating this inner spirit or ki in the Japanese traditions or chi uh, in the Chinese traditions. And so I started thinking about that kind of stuff um, when I was actually like middle school uh, mm, and became wow. really interested in the softer side of the martial arts. Uh, one of the, the gifts that my mom gave me was she, as she started to think about her recovery, uh, she started bringing me to um, uh, Alcoholics and Narcotics Anonymous meetings. Uh, and so I developed a language around recovery that was helpful for me. Um, and I share that because uh, there was an experience the first time I ever truly meditated, despite wondering what it was due to my exposure to martial arts, was my mom finally um, checked herself in for a 60-day rehabilitation experience at a place called Veritas Villa in upstate New York. And one of the sort of important aspects of that is when the parents in recovery invite um, you know, dependents or kiddos that, you know, um, have, have suffered as a result of their own addictions and behaviors. And so I was invited to spend the weekend there. And, uh, at one point in the weekend, I remember this really vividly, they invited each of us to stand up, say our names and reply, you know, hi, my name is John and I'm the son of a, of a drug addict. And then just sort of share what was in our hearts, uh, it was this sort of visceral, like emotional release where I literally just stood there for 15 minutes and cried. Mm, oh my goodness. And, yes. and that was like all I had to say. <laughs> and uh, so here's where the meditation comes in. Uh, a gentleman who sort of struck me as an African-American wisdom figure, uh, sort of a black Moses is what I referred to him mm -hmm. as. His name was Mario. He came mm -hmm. up to me and he thanked me for my courage um, and said he wanted to give me a gift before the weekend was over. And so I got really excited. I didn't know what it was. And shortly before, um, I think it was time to leave the night before he invited me, uh, to, um, sort of sit with him. And, um, he, uh, led me through a process of meditation. I was, um, probably 14 uh, years old at the time and what transpired and in, in that what appeared to be an infinite amount of of time because time stopped was a really deep uh, experience led by him you know physically placing his hands um, on my forehead and leading me through a guided meditation and he left me with this great gift that started this incredible journey um, and left me with a book that I read. I still have that edition. It's called The Finding of the Third Eye. It sounds really esoteric, but um, it was something deeply meaningful to him. And in fact, is a, is a book about meditation. And so that's, mm -hmm. that's when I tumbled down the rabbit hole like Alice and mm -hmm. uh, started really trying to learn more and more. Mm, this is quite a story, John. You know, the just the whole buildup to it, right? The, the intense tra traumatic experience as a young boy trying to make sense of this world and being invited by your mom, which that, you know, kudos to your mom for, for seeking the recovery process and inviting you that emotional release that, that came over you, um, it almost, for me, it sounds like it's that was the beginning of, of clearing a path to be open to receiving then this beautiful gift from, from Mario to receive uh, your first experience of meditating. And it, what a, I just, I can't even really imagine this. What a powerful experience as a young boy to, to have. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a great gift, um, despite sort of the cauldron of pain that I had to endure. Um, you know, being invited on the healing journey was a, was a way my mother could reclaim her motherhood. Mm -hmm. So, okay, so this is, a, this is where it began. 
here you are today at UNT. Tell us, tell us a little bit more about what's happening in your world currently, the projects you're working on. I'm happy to. The one sort of point I would make, though, is as a result of that um, experience, um, you know, I went on this sort of journey, sort of a compare it to Doctor Strange, if you've seen the Marvel movie, where he goes and seeks out the camertage, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Um, I haven't seen it. I'm not a, some of my movie history is a little lacking. That's okay. Well, I I kind of equate my journey to Doctor Strange because I, I became a doctor ultimately, but so I, I uh, in high school, I became so intrigued by meditation. It turns out there, there was a famous health spa 20 minutes from my grandparents' house called the New Age Health Spa, where famous people from around the country would go to heal and learn all kinds of, uh, you know, sort of healing arts uh, mm-hmm. for their journey. And I, I got a job there as a dishwasher, and then I became sort of the the groundskeeper. But I ran into a an incredible teacher. His name was Harold Weisberg. Um, and he uh, was grounded in the tradition of Zen and mm-hmm. Tai Chi, and, and he started giving me an expanded language around meditation and getting the issues out of my tissues through uh, Tai Chi. And then that led me ultimately to a residency uh, in Japan at a, at a famous Zen monastery where I had my first uh, experience of, of insight. And so that really, uh, that sort of record of experiences profoundly shifted the way in which I thought about education uh, when I became a a teacher. And fast forward to the present, where I'm now a dean at the University of North Texas in South Dallas. And so what's been important to me uh, in this new role is I feel in higher education, we have lost the whole person, uh, especially the body. Mm-hmm. So our learning has become increasingly from the neck up and we've lost touch with, with sort of this ancient deep intelligence that's really toes to crown. And so as I thought about my own experiences as a teacher and a leader in education, I became increasingly obsessed with asking the question, why are so many teachers suffering? Mm-hmm. Why are so many school leaders suffering in America and here in Dallas? Uh, and why are some of our best human beings leaving the profession at such alarming rates? And so I've coined this term called teacher dropouts. Mm-hmm. I, I, I now call it like principal dropouts. And so there's something going on in our society, in our schools, in our communities that's giving rise to unprecedented levels of stress and trauma. Mm-hmm. that we're not paying attention to. Mm-hmm. And so I, I use stress and trauma intentionally because I, I feel like we're under such immense pressure in schools to um, you know, achieve and try to sort of uh, conceal sort of the deep wounds that students and families bring with them to their learning that that's you know, creating tremendous and untenable expectations on teachers that are showing up by them physically leaving. We have teaching is now ranked as the fourth most stressful profession in America behind being a soldier or a police officer. Incredible. Incredible. Wow. When do you uh, go ahead? Sorry. No, I was going to say just last year alone, Dallas Fort Worth needed 7,234 brand new teachers and they're the sort of prevalent reasons why we found out that need was there was because of stress and burnout, toxic work environments, and the rising challenges associated with student behavior. Okay, very interesting and, and very alarming statistics. I had um, I knew a little bit about that, but that's that's uh, pretty shocking. Where, at what point do you feel this this stress level? exacerbated? Do you think it was with um, the use of technology, the smartphone? I mean, because if we look at teachers in the context of other professionals, I know stress has risen incredibly um, as we've become more technologically connected. And, you know, you, you alluded to that in the beginning of our, of our interview, but where, where do you remember really kind of seeing like, wow, this is getting worse? I mean, what, what time period would you say? 
Well, I would say uh, when I was in Chicago, it was where I had this epiphany that connected to my own personal story. And what happened was I started visiting Chicago public schools is one of the largest systems in the country, about 400 plus schools. And I started visiting schools as the CEO of a company trying to help them solve problems of practice. And what I noticed was there was just a lot of human beings who appeared checked out. And I wondered like, hmm, like, why are they appearing this way? What's going on? And so as I started to ask different kinds of questions, it became really apparent to me that there was an unprecedented numbers of teachers suffering from physical and mental anguish um, as they were trying to carry out this incredible enterprise. Um, yet the school system or systems were doing nothing about the well-being of adults. And so we, we kept trying to give them more pressure, more continuous professional development around things like math and science and asking them to get better and better test scores. Yet in the midst of that, what I sensed, we were not paying attention to their uh, well-being. Mm -hmm. So it's, it seemed to me an untenable enterprise to think that if the teachers were truly um, experiencing acute suffering in their bodies and their minds and their emotions and their hearts, it would probably be increasingly difficult for them to build relationships with students and help them, you know, get to great. And so I partnered with a, a well-known primary care doctor in Chicago, Dr. Alex Lickerman, uh, who wrote an incredible book called The Undefeated Mind. Hmm. based on his, uh, his own experiences. And he opened up a world, the, the scientific world of stress and depression and anxiety. And, and what we found as a result of our collaboration was more and more teachers around the country uh, being medicated on drugs like clonazepam and Prozac just to simply try to cope. Man, wow. And what year again, John, were, were you working with Lickerman? And uh, This was... Uh, 2014 to 2016. Okay, so this is pretty recent. Um, but have you noticed this trend um, for a while? Just just observing the escalation of 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 stress and how it's been impacting educators. Absolutely, and it and uh, you know um, you know it's it's sort of like we have lost track of the human yeah. part of education, and so a big part of my work is. How do we rehumanize the profession? Mm -hmm. and so as a result of my own story, my own uh, teaching experiences personally, and what I've seen across the country now as a dean, I'm able to like work with aspiring teachers and trying to reimagine how to help them cope for a world that, you know, I describe as increasingly volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. Indeed. So tell tell us about the 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 big project, your your baby over there at UNT. Well, uh, sort of an acknowledgement that there's two things I'm obsessed with outside of um, education. One is we have a chronic epidemic where too few students are actually getting college degrees in America. Uh, despite trying in multiple settings, stopping, starting, accumulating lots of debt, uh, we have really bad attainment rates. Uh, and so a Can big question. Can I stop question you for, and, and ask you about that? that yeah. That's interesting because you almost hear the opposite where it seems like more and more people have more access to going to college these days. So that's interesting being as though I'm not in that world that I, I've been misled perhaps, that I, I thought that the numbers were getting better on that. Well, I want to clarify access is not the problem. The problem is finishing. Okay. Okay. Got it. And so if you look cumulatively at a statistic that most people are unaware of called a college's institutional graduation rate, mm. uh, what we're finding is they are shockingly low. And for students, for example, who are first-generation students of color, they're morally low. Uh, so, mm. for example, it's not uncommon in large community college systems like ours where the sort of two-year attainment rate for an associate's degree is between 11 and 15%. Okay, wow. Um, so, and the statistics are, are 
are equally um, problematic for four-year institutions. So for the majority of students in America who have access to higher education and are seeking to transform their lives through what its promises, um, the problem is we're not getting enough of them to and through. So as a dean, I'm trying to figure out how can I help create a pathway, a runway for students to first and foremost, get to and through college. Mm-hmm. And then for those who are equally excited about becoming educators, how do I prepare them for that world as well? And so we've reimagined teacher education uh, here at at UNT Dallas. Um, We've started including um, different kinds of competencies into our curriculum that involve like self-care, helping students to learn skills to pay attention to their own resilience and mindsets uh, in the midst of adversity. The thing I'm most excited about in May, we will open the nation's first school of education affiliated um, mind-body studio, which is called Third Space. This is a recognition that if we want to get more students to and through college, and if we want them to become teachers and stay in the classroom, Um, because students and families need them to do so, then we've got to pay attention to educating more than their minds. We've Mm. got to pay attention to how do we help them reclaim the body? How do we help them think about their emotional lives? How do we help them think about healing deep traumas? At UNT Dallas, we are an institution at the intersection of multiple deserts, a poverty desert, a food desert, a higher education desert and what I'm now calling a well-being desert. So mm. how do we how do we reclaim higher education mm-hmm. as a journey of healing um, as much as it's a journey of getting credentials? And so that's what third space is all about. Wow. Okay, John. So good. And I have a lot of questions. It's very, very, very interesting. How d- can you explain the actual delivery of those things? Like, did they take classes? Um, who teaches those? Or is it more like a free form open meditation space or a hybrid? Or what is, how does it practically look? So we're being very intentional about getting student feedback, faculty and staff feedback, university feedback around, you know, what are the issues that are surfacing that require a different kind of higher education. Um, so the space is intentionally designed to not have a tangibly understandable um, name. So third space, like what does that mean? Yes, um, I was going to ask that. So, what, what, tell, tell us about what that means, third space. Well, in, in sort of the lexicon of philosophy and theory, there have been some really incredible te- uh, teachers that suggest that when it comes to the human, uh, all things human, that there are aspects of our humanity and development that can be named and unnamed. And so third space is both a nameable and an unnameable space where we are going to provoke uh, an adventure in our students to consider aspects of their human development which they otherwise would not receive on a higher education journey. So for example, we know we're going to uh, pay attention to um, their sort of their physical being. Um, Higher ed has lost the body. We don't offer PE. We're actually seeing deep suffering in higher ed as indicated, for example, by protests and rising amounts of sexual assault. So the, the body is teaching. Mm-hmm. Uh, us that it demands to be heard but the question is outside of the traditional ways that we try to alleviate that whether it be through referrals to a counseling office which is very, very noble work or something else we've got to do more so from physical development to emotional development to thinking about deep soul work third space is going to offer students an opportunity to participate in um, coursework sort of off-the-beaten-path coursework that's related to what they traditionally would take as college students and teachers to be, but offer aspects um, of training that can help them develop in these other areas as well. Oh, okay. I got you. So does it, do those classes that they would be taking at third, in third space, 
did that do those things count towards their their credits for graduation or is this sort of an extra layering of things great question so what we're hoping to do is um, to choose specific classes where students have in-class learning um, and then they can physically go to third space and have third space learning here's one example mm-hmm. um, all students who seek to become t- teachers at our school have to take a class called health and kinesiology. And so what typically that means is they learn all kinds of theory about human health and how the body works. And they, they are sort of socialized and thinking about what that means for the students they'll one day teach. What they're not often provoked about is what does this class mean for your own body, your own health, your own embodiment? And so what we'll do is Um, do all the stuff that I just mentioned in their sort of formal classwork, but then expose them to uh, different types of learning, somatic learning, if you will, by bringing Mm -hmm. in experts in somatics to lead them on a journey around their own physical well-being as a precondition for enabling in others. So that's one example. Uh, We'll also be bringing in, you know, meditation, movement teachers, expressive arts, teachers um, and others to sort of help facilitate renaissance learning, you know, deeply rooted in ancient wisdom practices to also kind of give them additional ways to think about their development. Oh, I love it. It's, it's, it's like the weaving. It's, it's, um, it's taking the classes that they, they're already taking, but providing that experiential learning piece or that somatic learning piece and that real connection piece so what about other students in other d- departments that are not going into education? Do you think that there could be eventually a place for other folks to come in? Or are we just looking right now for the School of Education? We're, our starting point is, um, you know, this is a big priority for me and I think a revolution in how we imagine what teachers need to be successful. Mm-hmm. And what students need to be successful and generally what human beings need to flourish. And so we have our starting point in education, but the goal will ultimately be to make third space pedagogy and learning uh, synonymous with how the university um, thinks about its sort of um, program offerings and how it thinks developmentally about what student needs students need to be successful. So it will be much broader over time, but we're sort of, you know, drilling one well deeply first. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. And I would imagine you guys would be um, taking some sort of like metrics and and studying this. And and I I can imagine that this would be extremely successful and then modeled across the country. I would imagine that that would be one of the uh, one of the hopes here, would it not be? I think so. You know, my, I, I'm committed to serving um, the community of South Dallas and the sort of cities and neighborhoods where our students come from as my first priority. I know it's it's easy to start thinking broadly about scale, yeah. and larger impact. But if I if I can simply transform a community that's been largely written off or forgotten um, and create generations of students who go into the teaching workforce and transform it so um, powerfully that, you know, it begins to force people to ask questions as to, you know, why are these teachers so different? Uh, Mm -hmm. Why are they so happy? Why are they so healthy? Then I think the implications above and beyond my small contribution and sphere will speak for themselves eventually. Mm. Oh yeah, absolutely. It it really, it really sounds like a culmination and kind of a life's work thing for you. And that it, I feel like it it's probably been evolving for many, many years for you, going you know directly back to the to your personal journey and where where it all began for you. And it's it also reminds me of the a quotation be the change that you want to see in the world so you're taking a real leadership role you spoke about your grandparents in the beginning being courageous leaders being vulnerable and, and you know i i would imagine that th- there is a lot of 
of that in this this uh, this journey for you uh, creating this third space? Did you have resistance or pushback or just a lot of like question marks? Like, what are you talking about, John? <laughs> That's, what is this? Yeah. Well, first of all, I don't have the profile that would suggest I should be a dean, period, or have a higher education credential. And so, what I, makes you say that? Well, if you look at the sorts of suffering that we see in our society and the ramifications that has for the long-term developmental outcomes for young people, I've been able to transcend it. Yes, sir. Uh, And the reason reason why is because people, um, you know, chose to love me and and give me access to different worlds that made it happen. Um, So I chose UNT Dallas because as I walked its campus as a rising university, um, in a wounded part of the city, I looked around and saw a mirror of myself and all the students mm. and thought, you know, if what a privilege I've been given to have landed where I did um, so that I could, you know, um, be able to try to provide them with access to a higher education that um, ultimately will help them um, heal whatever it is they need to heal, learn whatever it is they need to learn and transform and empower, um, you know, themselves along the way. And so there's been a lot of, of, you know, resistance and questions, all of which, you know, I continue to work through and, and try to provide the best rationale that I can. But nevertheless, despite that, we press on. Um, and, uh, I think that, we, we have created pretty significant buzz around a different way to imagine what teachers and, and educators need as a precondition to achieve the goals we all have for a thriving and flourishing society. Oh my gosh, indeed. It really, it's so important. It, it really is. If we're not taking care of our teachers who's taking care and, and educating our children and it's it's this perpetual stress response to stress response and and no one's it, it, the, the mind is like as we were saying in the very very beginning about your memory right where I was complimenting you for actually remembering me and and recognizing that when the body is in constant fight or flight it's not able to retain information because it's all coming in through the amygdala and the amygdala was never designed to to you know be the storehouse of of all information it was just designed to fight or flight or or, or freeze to protect us so if we're constantly traumatized nothing is working and so you're addressing the root cause and I, I love the 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 other expression uh, bloom where you're planted you know and and the fact that this is where you are this is the, the the problem that you see and you're you're taking strong leadership role in in trying to solve it in a meaningful way and I am extremely grateful that you're here in the community and actually I'll have to tell you when you were talking just now I got chills all the way up and down my body. And for me, that's a sign that that there is something bigger happening here. And you are very connected and plugged into source. And that's what's guiding this. It, it, it feels extremely powerful. And I know that it's going to have a, a, an amazing impact. I can't wait to see how it unfolds. And if you need any help along the way, please reach out to me and I would be more than happy to do any small part that I could. Oh, that would be fantastic. And I, I need help. As many hands as we can put on this plow that's leading toward the North Star of human flourishing, the better we'll all be. And I'll end sort of based on something you said. Um, I see more and more that schools could be symbolically referred to as amygdalas or amygdalae (laughs) in terms of, in terms of the conditions that we're experiencing in the culture and the climate. So how do we collectively um, begin to regulate and calm the central nervous system? That is our schools Mm -hmm. so that the human beings within them, all of them can find safety 
and comfort and the ability to thrive. And so that's what um, this work is all about. And finally, the ultimate goal of Third Space has nothing to do with a physical studio nested in a beautiful building. It's about helping students and whoever might uh, have the opportunity to participate in its programming realize the third space within themselves. Yay. Love it. That's a beautiful way to end um, our conversation, which I always say this, I've noticed that I really could continue to talk to you for much longer, but I, I promised you an hour and I appreciate you and your time. We we are now formally entering the last short part of our, our chat today, which is hummus among us. And you have some hummus. I asked you uh, what you like to eat in terms of hummus and you delivered, John. You, you came up with a suggestion. Do you want to tell us what, what you have here for us? Absolutely. I, I, uh, my wife brought home some really delicious hummus. It's uh, called roasted red pepper hummus from um, Whole Foods. And um, I, I was sort of really blown away by it. So um, I have it in front of me and I'm so excited to dig into it. Yay, I have it too. And here's a big disclaimer that I've been telling folks is we're opening up our hummus and we'll probably start to eat it in about 10 or 20 seconds. And if you don't like the sound of chewing, this is your opportunity to, to turn away for a moment while we, we dig in. I will say that I have not tried it. I deliberately waited to now to try it because I've not had this brand. So I'm about to dig in. So the chewing will commence here shortly. Super excited. Mm. It's different, you know. I, I've been on this sort of. I had a lot of different types of hummus, and uh, I don't know. There's something about this particular concoction. They uniquely found how to capture the essence of all things red peppers. This is smooth. I like it. Mm. I'm so glad you suggested this because, see, what happens? I think in anything in life is. Some, well, I shouldn't say this. I, I, I won't make a blanket statement. I'll say for myself, I can get in the same lane about something because I also like roasted red pepper hummus, but I like the ones that I've gotten into, right? So that's what I buy. I buy it over and over and over and yeah. over again, right? So I don't try other brands usually of the ro roasted red pepper, but dang, this is, this is nice and smooth and kind of creamier than what I'm used to. Oh, good. I'm glad you like it. I like it. So. I like it, too. What, um, what are you dipping with? I have these um, sea salt pita chips from 365 um, that I grabbed when I bought this. I, I normally like to dip uh, carrot sticks and celery sticks in this. Mm. This is really good. I'm trying to... Sometimes I wish I was a, a chef or something or more culinary, had more culinary vocabulary other than I like it. It's nice. It's smooth. But trying to, what, what adjectives would you further give it? Because it, it really is good. I don't know. I call it alive. Because I think, I think like the, you know, the way in which we tend to prepare vegetables is like we destroy their aliveness. Mm -hmm. And so I find the roasted red peppers in there, how they're embodied in this to be alive. Yeah, you're right. It does feel alive. It's very good. And like I said, the thing that's separating it from what I'm used to is the consistency. It's it's almost buttery and smooth and absolutely not. It, it's just... Let's see. Let me see if I can get another another word to come out other than that. Let me take another bite. Mm. I would add like comforting. You know what? Yeah. It is comforting. It's it's filling without being like heavy. I think it just in general hummus has that quality, which is why I like it a lot. Well, you just introduced me to a whole bunch of new stuff, including this type of hummus, but 
I think more more importantly, of course, John is thank you for sharing about your journey, where it all began. The fact that I didn't even know that you were a New Yorker, and I I spent a a little brief time in New York myself, so that was really cool. I'd love to at some point, you know, get together again and and chat more. And like I said, if if I can be of assistance in any way with um, the project. Um, I, I, I'm not really good at laying down brick and mortar, but you know, I'll, I'm, I, I can roll up my sleeves. I can do what I can. So just, uh, don't hesitate to call well, upon I'm, me. And I'm going to for sure. So that you don't have to worry about brick and mortar because it's already been laid. It's good. Oh, good. Excellent. Now, now is the sort of most important question, which is how do we make sure that what happens inside of this beautiful space? actually helps us realize its vision. Mm, Yes. And I have no doubt that that it will happen. Your leadership is so good and very admirable. I appreciate you for being you. And again, thank you for taking a little time this morning with me and uh, appreciate it. Thank you again. It's, it's been my pleasure and honor. Thanks for the invite. <laughs> Thanks, John. Bye. Bye. Hey there. Hope you found value today in listening. If you did, please share the episode with others and subscribe. Look out for another episode in about two weeks. Till then, love yourself and love others.